Good morning to you. Man, we had a great week this week in our eight great days of prayer and fasting. Over 300 of you participated in a prayer gathering. We had 12 of them this week, and we lifted up our impossible things requests to God together, and uh, it was just a glorious time. And uh, we're excited to see what God's gonna do as a result of his people crying out to him, seeking him by faith for impossible things, amen? It was glorious. Well, listen, we're gonna get right to it today because there is a lot in front of us. Uh, If you're new here, my name's Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the honor of bringing God's word to us today. So you wanna reach inside your worship folder and pull that study outline out so you can follow along with me. There's a lot in front of us today. We're in week four of our study of Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter in the Bible. We did reach back a bit into chapter 10 to get the full context and we're gonna extend forward next week into the first part of chapter 12 because it's there that we meet the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ himself, who I think we could all say is the supreme example of living by faith. It's also in chapter 12 that we're told something very interesting that all of the heroes of faith that are mentioned in chapter 11 are actually sitting in the grandstands of heaven right now, cheering us on. Chapter 12 and verse one says that. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. So those people of faith from centuries past who finished their race and finished it well, this says are still alive. And they're rooting for you. And they're rooting for me as we run our race. They're pulling for us to remain faithful to Jesus Christ all the way to the the finish line when we will run into his arms. Amen? Into his arms. Let me review with you what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 tells us, it says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So faith is being sure of what we hope for, all of those future rewards that God has promised his people, and faith is being certain about the existence of unseen things, invisible realities that God says are really real. I do think it's important to note this, that Christians are, are sure of these future rewards, we're certain of these invisible realities because God says they're real. God says they exist. That's a key to understanding faith, I believe. The faith that pleases God, that's commendable, is a faith in the word of God. We believe God created the world out of nothing because God says that very clearly in his word. We believe that we will see Jesus at the end of our race because God says that in his holy word. So don't miss this. Faith is having strong confidence in the Bible, in the scriptures, in the word of God. It's believing that in the Bible, God is telling us the truth. So a great way to build your faith is what? To read the Bible. To read the word of God, like it says, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So we began our tour through the hall of faith last week and we were gazing at the portraits of those faith-filled saints from ancient times that are hanging there in the gallery in the hall of faith. And we looked at, at Abel. 
and Enoch and Noah, some very early characters in the Bible, and that prompted us to realize that God has always required faith. God has always been pleased with faith. The writer wants to show us that all of these people, dating way back to the very first human family, came into a right relationship with God through faith, not through their good deeds. They did not earn it. They received it as a gift by faith. Today our tour continues, and we're gonna see again that what God is pleased to find in people is a, a, a deep, whole person trust in his character, in his word, in his promises. And it's a heart thing for sure, but it's a heart thing that will inevitably show up in our lives, in our lifestyles. It's the nature of faith to be expressed and to show up. And we've noted that the people who are portrayed in Hebrews 11 all express their faith in certain ways. And I want you to say these aloud with me. I think they're there on your study guide, yes? All right, let's say them together. Confident assurance in the face of the invisible, continual seeking in the face of the impossible, complete reliance in the face of the intangible, courageous obedience in the face of the incomprehensible, and continuing perseverance in the face of the intolerable. And we're gonna see all of these expressions in our journey today, so here we go. Right after Noah, in this great faith chapter, we see a portrait of the man named Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. We'll skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would receive the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Well, I think we should probably pause for a moment and just kind of stare at this man's portrait for a few minutes. More is said about Abraham in this chapter than about any of the other characters. The Jewish people revered him, as you probably know. After all, it was Abraham, it's to him, that God gave those massive, great covenant promises, right? Promise of a land to inhabit and promise of innumerable descendants and the promise that the nations would one day be blessed through his descendants, particularly one descendant, someone referred to in the New Testament as the seed of Abraham. That's Galatians 3.16, the seed of Abraham. And that's a prophetic reference to the coming one, Jesus Christ. And Abraham believed those promises. He didn't start out as a great man of faith. He grew up, Abraham did, in a pagan family and like his father, 
Abraham worshiped a whole pantheon of pagan gods, but there came a time in his life when the one true God, the creator of all things, the sovereign Lord, decided to put his finger on Abraham and choose him for a special purpose. Choose him to be the recipient of all of those magnificent promises. God selected Abraham out of the crowd. And it wasn't because of how good a man Abraham was. It wasn't because of how moral he was or how exemplary he was. It had nothing really to do with him. God simply chose him because he wanted to. That's what a sovereign God can do. And then he worked in Abraham's life to form him into a man of faith. In the New Testament, the books of Romans and the book of Galatians, are, they're, they're filled with references to Abraham and to his faith and to the ways that his faith prompted him to live for God and prompted him to obey God. Abraham is held up as the prime Old Testament example of justification by faith as well as a man who lived his life by faith. And we know from Abraham's story that even after his conversion, uh, he was far from a perfect man, right? Abraham had his character flaws, his deficiencies, his shortcomings. He had his sins for sure. But the overarching testimony of Abraham's life is that he was a man of faith, faith in God. Galatians 3.6 says this, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, and what does it call him? The man of faith. So how was the man of faith's faith manifested? How exactly did his deep trust in God and in the plan of God show up in his life? Well, the writer in Hebrews takes the spotlight and puts it on three events from the life of Abraham that show us how his faith was manifested. His pilgrimage to a foreign country, his fathering of a miracle son, and his willingness later on to offer that same son to God as a sacrifice. And from those three events, we learn it was Abraham's faith. It was his faith that prompted him to make some really, really tough decisions. Think about it. Because Abraham trusted the word of God to him, he obeyed God even though he didn't fully understand. Because he had faith in God's word, he heeded God's call to go, even though he was unsure of the destination. That takes faith. Because he believed God, he waited on God's timing. He waited for God's time frame, even though his destiny had been clearly promised to him. He waited decades because he believed God, he trusted God to keep his promise even though he knew it would take a miracle for it to come to pass. Because he believed God, he valued God's promised reward even though he never saw it during his earthly life. Because he trusted God's word, he released, he released, he released his most treasured possession to God even though it didn't seem to make any sense at the time. Those are some tough, tough decisions, wouldn't you agree? To choose to leave behind all that is familiar and secure and set out for a promised land, a new place that he'd never been to. To journey for years and years and years and finally get there only to discover that other people already lived there and the culture was already established and 
Really, he was just an immigrant, a stranger in a foreign land. That must have been extremely hard. While there, he had to move around a lot. He lived in tents, it says, basically the lifestyle of a nomad, roaming, roaming around, no permanent home. Then God spoke to him and promised him all these offspring, even though he and Sarah were childless, so he got excited about that, but then he, he waited years and years and years and years and decades, actually, and with nothing happening. Finally, after a brief lapse in faith that resulted in another child from another woman, finally, his wife did get pregnant, and of course, he was overjoyed. Only after that child grew up to hear God one day come to him and say, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice your beloved son to me there. And despite the total seeming irrationality of that command, he went ahead and he strapped the boy down to the altar. This beloved son, this child of promise, this miracle boy, and then he raised the knife to kill him, it says, trusting that God would somehow, somehow raise him from the dead. Wow, that would take a lot of faith, wouldn't it? And Abraham had faith, and that's why we're staring at his portrait today in this gallery of faith. As I think about those things, my mind goes to some of you, some of people, you people that I know who've been in situations that required you to have faith in God. I think of those of you who, at some point in your life, made a very hard decision to obey God, even when you didn't fully understand things. I think of some of you who, when God said to you, go, you went. You left behind what was familiar and you stepped out in faith even though you weren't totally sure where, the, where God's path was gonna take you. I think of those of you who persisted in trusting God to do what he promised to do even when there wasn't any visible evidence that you could see with your eyes that it was happening. I think of those of you who became willing to release to God, to release to God that thing which had become so precious to you, that dream that your heart had treasured maybe for years and by faith you chose to just release it and give it to God to wait and see what God would provide. I am grateful for your examples of faith. It challenges me. That by the way is the kind of faith that makes God proud of his people when he sees it. The writer inserts this little commentary in the middle of talking about Abraham here in verse 13, it says, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. Think about that. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Listen to this. Therefore, what does it say? God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. People are ashamed of God. Sometimes God's people are embarrassed to be associated with the Lord, but here it talks about God not being ashamed of us. 
of his people of faith who really do believe that he's gonna deliver on all of his promises, his promise to provide, provide us with a better country and a better city and a better life in eternity, better than anything we've experienced in this life. I read that and I moved in my spirit to pray, oh Lord, increase my faith. I want you, God, to be proud of my faith, to not be ashamed to be the God of Steve. Cultivate in me the faith of Abraham, faith that takes the longer view of things. Develop in me a pilgrim faith. A pilgrim faith that doesn't get too comfortable here, but longs for life in the eternal city of God. Longs for eternal rewards more than present security, that refuses to go back to worldly living and pagan pleasures that don't really satisfy the soul. Grow in me, Lord, a faith that's gonna endure until my final breath on this earth. A faith that clings to Jesus all the way to the finish line, even if I never see during my lifetime here the fulfillment of all of your promises. God, cultivate in my heart that kind of persevering faith, faith that makes you proud to be called my God. Lately, I've been stunned, in a good way, by the faith of a young lady Many of us know, and many of us have been earnestly seeking God for. She's battling cancer, multiple tumors, more discovered just recently, cancer in her body and on her brain, and she's a nurse, so she's in the medical profession, so she knows too much, you know what I'm saying? She knows more than the average person about what's going on in her body. But when others in that situation might be sinking into despair or turning on God, Chelsea's calm optimism encourages me and convicts me. I imagine she has her moments. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But her faith isn't wavering. She knows God has promised her healing and will accomplish it. Hopefully in this life, but if not, certainly in the next. That's the kind of faith that makes God proud to be called her God. The faith of Abraham. Well, following his portrait, we see three more famous patriarchs, Abraham's descendants, beginning in verse 20. By faith, it says, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. 30 chapters of Genesis summed up in three concise little sentences. But you probably noted what ties them together is that they all talk about approaching death. Do you see that? Nearing the time of death. The writer is underscoring his point that the faith that pleases God is faith that remains strong right up until your last dying breath on this earth. Faith that endures right up to the very end. That makes me think of some dear saints that I've had the privilege of being with as they approach death being at their bedside just moments or hours before they slip through that curtain that separates this life from the next. My mind goes back to Ron and to Larry 
and to Linda and to, Le- to Elaine and to other people. More than once, just talking with them and praying with them, I've heard them whisper to me, Steve, it is beautiful. You wouldn't believe it. I'm ready to go. Tell my family I'm ready. I want to go see Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that'll strengthen your faith. That'll strengthen your faith to hear words like that from people who are on the brink. They trusted Jesus all the way into his arms. Well, these Old Testament patriarchs possess that kind of undying faith. They're examples to us of faith that approaches death with steadfast confidence despite not having received what God promised them. Theirs was a faith that spoke confidently about the promises of God being fulfilled despite not having seen it during their lifetime. Notice that they each spoke their faith. Did you catch that? They each spoke their, ca- their faith. They blessed their offspring, it says, with statements about God's future favor on their lives. That's a statement of faith. They verbalized their belief that their descendants would indeed inherit the land of promise, even though it hadn't happened yet. And so I read the testimonies of these three men and I pray, God, cultivate that kind of enduring to the end kind of faith in our hearts. Help us to talk as if heaven was really real, especially as we come ever nearer to that doorway ourselves. Well, as we continue walking down the hallway, we see more portraits. We see a portrait of Moses' parents Verse 23, by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So this Jewish couple with the beautiful baby boy that had come under a threat decided to exercise faith instead of caving into fear. They trusted God with their child. It's a good word to parents, isn't it? They trusted God with their their son and they devised a creative way to cooperate with the rescue plan of God, namely a floating basket. The next portrait we see is of that baby, all grown up now, Moses. And we know this, right, That, that just like Abraham, Moses was highly revered by the Jewish people. He was their great deliverer. He'd led them out of bondage in Egypt. He'd guided them through the wilderness towards the promised land. God had given his law, his commandments to his people through Moses, laws that were meant to govern this new society and shape this new culture that he was forming. And so Moses would forever be associated with it. It was called the law of Moses, right? So this great lawgiver was held up as one to be honored for his association with the holy law of God. And yet here, it's Moses' faith It's his faith that the writer of Hebrews chooses to focus on. His summary of Moses' life here would, excuse me, likely it would have bothered the Jews to have read this because the writer contends that it was Moses' faith that pleased God. It was faith that preceded all of his good works. It also produced those good works and so he's distinguished here as a man of faith. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ 
as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Who's that? He saw God. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And so here it is again, the reality that faith, true, genuine faith, produces action. It influences decisions, it influences priorities, it influences the direction of the life of the the believer. And so Moses is an example of a man who saw, it says, the unseen God and made big decisions, big priority decisions in his life based on that vision of God. Notice the priority choices he made that were prompted by his faith. It says he embraced his God identity above his royal identity. He chose mistreatment and suffering over sinful pleasures. Think about that. He regarded heavenly rewards more highly than earthly treasure. He focused on God's mission over selfish ambition. And he trusted God's word over cultural custom and even over conventional wisdom. Sprinkle blood on doorposts? What? (laughs) Let me ask you something in light of Moses' faith. What, What difficult priority decisions is God calling you to make in your life by faith? Is he calling you to prioritize worship over recreation? Obedience over convenience? Is he God calling you to prioritize future joy over present pleasure? Is he calling you to prioritize serving other people over self-focused complacency? Might God be calling you to prioritize your God-shaped identity over what other people think you are? or say you are. When I read Moses' story here, it's all about delayed gratification, isn't it? Delayed gratification. Moses was a man who learned from God to delay gratification. And our culture here that we live in is obsessed with what? Instant gratification, right? Gotta have it now. Gotta feel good right now. Gotta make the bad go away right now. Gotta be respected now. Gotta have my way now. Moses had a faith that enabled him to put things off. He said, I'm gonna forego fleeting pleasure now for eternal pleasures later. Faith prompts people to think like that. So we see Moses, the man of faith, whose deep trust in God caused him to prioritize God above self. Then we see, next in this gallery of faith, two generations of Israelites mentioned. Verses 29 and 30, by faith, it says, the people, children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. So here we see these two successive generations of Israelites modeling a faith that faced desperate situations with risk-taking action based on the promises of God. 
faith that faced intimidating situations with an unorthodox obedience based on God's word. March around it seven times. What? They did it. They risked it. They obeyed. God split the sea. God knocked down the walls of Jericho. The Israelites' part was to believe the word of God and to act on that belief. And when they did, God did amazing things. Now listen, listen I'm asking you to follow me here, okay? I'm gonna say something that might not set right with you. It might be a little controversial. Biblical theology matters in our interpretation of these events. Here's what I believe. I I think it's unwise, listen to me carefully, okay? I think it's unwise to presume that God will always do everything for you and me in the exact same way he did for his people back then. Maybe you agree with that, maybe not. I believe that was a unique period, a unique epoch in salvation history when the Lord was acting in miraculous ways to protect and to deliver his chosen people so that the line of Messiah would be preserved so that people down through the succeeding ages would have the opportunity to be saved from their sins through Messiah's death and burial and resurrection. I believe it was a unique period in history when for us here and now, sometimes God does split the sea for us to walk right through it so we can be delivered. We rejoice when he does that. Sometimes he does break down the walls that stand in front of us so we as his people can walk into a new era of victorious living and when God does that, we praise him and we shout and we're glad and we give thanks, right? But we need to be honest as Christians. At other times, God chooses not to do that even though we have faith. We don't always know his reasons why. Pastor Joe gave a great talk on this last night in our evening of praise and worship. We don't always know the reasons why God doesn't split the sea or doesn't knock down the walls. He evidently has some other purposes in mind that might be mysterious to us, other good things he wants to accomplish by leaving the walls where they are. So we don't presume upon God. We don't test God and then try something else if if he doesn't work for us. We do pray We do ask God earnestly by faith to do impossible things because he invites us to do just that. We seek, we knock on heaven's door like we've been doing all week, right? With our petitions, we cry out to God and say, show us your strength, show us your power and might. Put us in awe of you again. And when he does, we go crazy. I mean, we love it. But if he doesn't, we keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking until that prayer burden is removed and then we just put it in God's hands and say, you're the sovereign God, do what you will. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, it says, and he will. 
I've met too many people. Why are you saying this, Steve? Because I've met too many people who abandoned their faith because God did not come through for them in the way they thought he should come through for them. The sea did not open up for them. The walls remained tall and imposing and they thought, well, heck with God then. I'll try something else to get what I want and they let go of their faith. Please hear my heart on this. Bad hermeneutics can harm people. Prosperity theology can lead to disillusionment with God and apostatizing and abandoning your, abandoning your faith, but good theology will strengthen your faith, keep you from getting mad with God, keep you from getting disillusioned with God. Let's remember that only God is God, and he's the sovereign Lord. He can do what he will. We are not God. And so when I put my lenses on for interpreting scripture, my redemptive, historical, Christ-centered lenses, I see these stories as illustrations of what our true champion, Jesus, has done for us. He is the one who, like Abraham, answered the call of God and left behind all that was familiar and headed out to a foreign country, trusting the Father's plan to create and form a new people of God. Like Isaac, Jesus too was the miracle-born beloved son on whom so many hopes rested, who who was not just offered up by his father on that hillside, but willingly gave up his life to sacrifice for us all. Jesus is the true Abraham. He's the better Abraham. He's the true and better Isaac. It's Jesus who called us out of the Egypt of this world. He was the lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts causing the death angel to pass over us. Jesus is the one who liberated us from slavery to sin and bondage. Jesus is the one who held back the floodwaters of God's judgment so we could walk through unharmed and run free on the other side to worship and dance and praise God. Unlike Moses, Jesus didn't just give us the law, he kept the law on our behalf, for us, so we could be free from condemnation. Jesus is the pillar of fire who leads us through the wilderness of this world. Instead of striking the desert rock in anger like Moses did to provide us with refreshment, Jesus is the rock who took the blow of God in our place and poured himself out for us. Jesus is our true deliverer and leader, and unlike Moses, Jesus is gonna take us all the way into the promised land that he has, he has given to us. So you see, Jesus is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Joshua who demolished all of those walls Satan erected to try to keep God's people out of possessing the eternal city that he's prepared for us. It is all about Jesus. He's the one. We put our faith in Christ. We put our faith in him. By the way, he's also the one who has mercy on sinners. People in our society who are considered to be outcasts, who are despised, people of this world, people like the next portrait we can look at, Rahab. Rahab, you know her story? Seeing Rahab in this catalog of faith heroes is so encouraging, she's listed right alongside all the others, all the other sinners. Verse 31, by faith the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. If you don't know her story, you can read about it in the book of Joshua. And and seeing her name here, I think, would have shocked the original Hebrew readers of this. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was an 
Amorite, no less, who were sworn enemies of the Jews. She lived in Jericho, which was doomed to be destroyed by God. Her exploit of faith here might seem kind of inconsequential, right? She welcomed into her home a few spies. And then when some city officials came calling to deal with those spies, she hid them on the roof of her house under some stalks of flax, it says. Boy, that must have been comfortable, huh? While sending those guys on a royal goose chase. You better run quick if you wanna catch them. They've got a head start on you. Was that a lie? Yep. That was not righteous. It does not say that Rahab was spared because she had stellar character. It says she was spared because by faith she welcomed the spies and hid them. If you read the narrative, you'll see that that we're told that Rahab had heard stories about the Lord. She'd heard stories about the God of Israel and his power and might to deliver his people from Egypt. She'd heard about the Red Sea parting. She'd heard the stories, so she came to fear the God of Israel. That's why she asked the spies to spare her and her family when they came back in full force to take the city. She's the one who placed a piece of scarlet fabric hanging out of her window as a kind of beacon locator so that when the walls came a-tumbling down and the Jewish soldiers rushed in, they would know who to rescue first. It's equally surprising for many people to discover that Rahab, Rahab, this redeemed prostitute, was actually included in the line of Messiah. Since her life was spared, she lived to become the mother of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, which means that Rahab was the great-great-great-grandmother of King David, right in the line of Messiah. So a merciful and wise God spared the life of this woman with a sinful past so she would have the honor of being in the ancestral line of Jesus. Wow, grace on display, right? Rahab trusted God that a scarlet thread would identify her as one to be saved from judgment. And of course, that pictured the sacrifice of her great, 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 grandson whose own scarlet thread of blood streaming down that cross would deliver all people of faith from the judgment that is to come. Rahab, the woman of faith. Hers was a courageous faith that took a huge risk in a very dangerous situation. And now this faith-filled woman is in the heavenly throng that is cheering us on today. Can you hear her voice? Saying, you can do this by the grace of God. How beautiful is that? And now we turn a corner and now we're in the last segment of the tour. And it's as if the writer feels he's running out of time, like me. And it's as if maybe he wants to get to Jesus as soon as possible. We read what remains and it's almost like we're running through the last hallway in the gallery all out of breath and the pictures are whizzing by us in a blur. Verse 32, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Amen. And then it shifts. Others, 
These, pe- these were people of faith too. This is why I said what I said a few moments ago. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Whoa. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. It's Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Wow. I guess we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that if we just have faith, our life here on earth is guaranteed to turn into a bed of roses and we'll float into heaven on flowery beds of ease. I guess we shouldn't think that. Preachers who tell you that are trying to sell you something. They are deceivers. They are mishandlers of the word of God. Yes, by faith, some of these heroes were given the ability to achieve great victories and perform mighty feats for God's sake. We can praise God for that, but others didn't fare quite as well in this life. They met with a different fate, didn't they? Even though they too were people of faith, God chose not to make their lives easy, not in this life anyway but because they valued the next life more than this life, because they were looking for a better resurrection, they were able to endure unimaginable suffering for God's sake, and they were able to stay faithful to the end. Like Jesus, they finished their race well, and they're placed here in a unique tier, a unique class of believers. They are those of whom the world was not worthy. Verse 40 here was perplexing to me for a long time. Now I think I get it at least a little bit. Why, God, why? Why did none of these Old Testament saints during their lifetime get to receive what you promised? Why did they all have to die in faith, only seeing those rewards from a distance, only seeing them with eyes of faith? How about this answer? Because in the great unfolding plan of the ages, God decreed that their faith would only be made sight when our faith is made sight. That's what it says. You see, even now in heaven, those heroes of faith, still, the ones who are cheering us on, they've still not yet fully received all that God has promised. That's still to come. I was talking about this with Pastor Claude this week because that's what pastors do, talk about stuff like this. He believes, he believes this, he believes that because God is forming one eternal family, one family of which he is the father, that he wants all of his sons and daughters from all ages to all experience his ultimate promise together at the same time as a family, like that dad at Christmas time who saves the best gift for that moment when everybody's coming to the room, everybody's present, everybody's seated around the table, everyone's finally home. I suspect Pastor Claude is right. 
What is that ultimate experience? There's a little clue here in verse 40. It says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. What is it? It's that moment that everyone is longing for when everything and everyone will finally be perfect. Perfect. The advent of perfection. I may be wrong on this, but I'm surmising from this that our much older brothers and sisters, I'm talking about those Old Testament saints, I'm surmising that they haven't seen Jesus yet. Not in his glory, not with new eyes that can actually behold perfection. Only together with us, New Testament believers, is that gonna happen? For when we see him, we shall be like him for we will see him as he is. <clears throat> when that which is perfect is come, then that which is partial shall be done away with. So we will all enter perfection together. Perfect relationships, perfect bodies, perfect environment, perfect everything. We will all enter perfection together as a complete family. You wanna be in on that? Want to be at the big family meal? You know, we're having a big family picnic today, right? You want to be at the big, big family picnic? You want to sit next to Sister Rahab and hear her story? You want to pass the potatoes over to Moses, Brother Moses, while he tells you about the walls of water that literally piled up on both sides? Want to actually see Jesus? with new perfect eyes that can behold him in all of his dazzling brilliance and splendor? If so, then if you never have, simply ask God to give you faith to believe in Christ, to put your full trust in Jesus. And then as a believer, seek to cooperate with God's work in you to cultivate a deep and lifelong trust in his holy word. And if you do, the Bible says you will not be disappointed you will not be eternally disappointed. Would you bow your heads with me? Two questions for you today. Two statements, I guess, that you can interact with. First, I just wonder how many of you would lift your hand and say, Steve, I wanna have that kind of faith. I wanna have the kind of faith that makes God proud of me. Would you lift your hands? My hand is lifted. I wanna have that kind of faith. The Lord loves that. The Lord loves that desire. Would you just pray this prayer? Lord, increase my faith. That's a biblical prayer. Lord, increase my faith. Maybe there's somebody in the room who's saying this. Steve, I'm being drawn to God today. As best I can tell, God is speaking to my heart. He's telling me to trust him. He's telling me to trust him by placing all my faith in Jesus to save me from my sins and be my Lord. If that's you today, Would you just lift your hand and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, have mercy on me. I can't see you, but I believe in you. Our prayer partners are coming up and they're gonna be willing to pray with you about anything that's on your heart today. I'm also gonna be standing up off to the side here. If you would like to be led in a prayer of faith for salvation in Jesus, I would love the honor of praying that with you. So Lord, thank you for this incredible gallery of faith. 
Lord, so many in this room want to have the kind of faith that makes you proud. And we know faith is a gift from God, so we ask you to increase our faith, Lord. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Especially enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who perfected the art of living by faith. Lord, as we respond to you now in worship and in prayer, have your way among us, Holy Spirit. Keep us faithful all the way till that moment when we finish our race and run into the arms of Jesus. I pray in Christ's name, amen.